You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, The Festivals and Their Meaning. This is the Easter section. It is lecture 14 in the series. Also, it is lecture 6 in the Easter set. And it is entitled Easter, The Mystery of the Future, given in Berlin on the 13th of April, 1908. In a former lecture, I pointed out that Christianity is wider in reach and compass than the sphere of religion as we normally understand it. I said that when in future times people have outgrown what they nowadays think of as religion, the substance and content of Christianity will have thrown off the outmoded forms of religious life and will have to become a potent spiritual influence in the whole of human culture. Christianity has the power in itself of transcending the forms through which at the present level of our cultural development we quite rightly express our religious life. Since that lecture, many symptoms and expressions of cultural life have come to my notice. I have had a brief period of lecturing in the northern countries, in Sweden, Norway and Denmark. The week before last I gave a lecture in Stockholm, among other towns in Sweden. In these lands, there is a low rate of population. Remember that London alone has as many inhabitants as the whole of Sweden, and much unoccupied territory. Therefore, people are separated by far greater distances than is the case in our middle European countries. Because of this, the influences of the old Nordic gods and beings are still perceptible, in the spiritual environment of those districts. Whoever has some knowledge of the spiritual can everywhere glimpse the countenances of those ancient Nordic gods who appeared to the initiates in the northern mysteries in times long before Christianity had spread over the world. In the very heart of these lands, imbued as they are with myth and legend, not only in the poetic but also in the spiritual sense, another symptom came into evidence. Between the lectures in Stockholm, I had also to give one in Uppsala. In the library there, in the very midst of all the manifestations of spirituality dating from the times of the ancient gods, lies the first Germanic version of the Bible, the so-called Silver Codex, consisting of the four Gospels translated in the 4th century by the Gothic Bishop Vulfila. During the Thirty Years' War, through strange workings of karma, this remarkable document was taken as booty from Prague and brought to the north, where it is now preserved in the midst of the spirit beings, who in memory at least pervade the spiritual atmosphere of those regions. And as though it were right and proper that this document should lie where it does, a strange occurrence played a part in the story. Eleven leaves of this silver codex were stolen by an antiquarian, 
but after some time his heir suffered such pricks of conscience that he sent the eleven leaves back again to Uppsala, where they now lie, together with the rest of the first Germanic translation of the Bible. The subject of one of my three public lectures in Stockholm was Wagner's title Ring of the Nibelungs. As one walked along the streets, posters could be seen announcing the performance at the opera of Wagner's Götterdämmerung, Twilight of the Gods, the last in his Ring cycle. These things are really symptomatic, interweaving in a most remarkable way. Underlying the old Nordic sagas, there is a note of deep tragedy, indicating that the Nordic gods and divinities would be superseded by one yet to come. This motive and trend of the Nordic sagas is echoed in a medieval form in Wagner. Siegfried is killed by a thrust between his shoulder blades, his only vulnerable part. This is a prophetic intimation that something particular is lacking, and that through one yet to come, the vulnerable place will be covered by the arms of the cross. This is no mere poetic image, but something that has been drawn from the inspiration belonging to the world of saga and legend. This same note of tragic destiny was implicit in the Nordic sagas and in the mystery truth underlying them. It was known that the Nordic gods would be replaced by the later Christian principle. In the northern mysteries, the significance of this twilight of the gods was everywhere made plain. It is also significant, and here again I mean something more than a poetic image, that in the very hearts of these people, the memory of those ancient gods lives on in peaceful reconciliation with all that has been brought or made its way there from Christianity. The presence of the Gothic Bible lying peacefully amid the memories of ancient times, strikes one as a symptom. One can also feel it as a symptom, as a foreshadowing of the future, that in lands where the ancient twilight gods were more intensely experienced than anywhere else, these gods should be presented again in their Wagnerian form, outside the narrow bounds of ordinary religion. Anyone with any capacity for interpreting the signs of the times, will perceive in the art of Richard Wagner the first rays of a Christianity emerging from the narrow framework of religious life into the wider horizons of modern spiritual culture. One can discern in the soul of Richard Wagner himself the central idea of Christianity coming to birth, bursting the bonds of religion and becoming more universal. When on Good Friday in the year 1857, he looks out of the Villa Wesendonk by the Lake of Zurich at the budding flowers of early spring, and the first seed of Parsifal quickens to life within him. This is a transformation and expansion of the religious idea contained in Christianity, the prophetic foreshadowing of Christianity to which he lifted his soul and gave such magnificent expression in the Ring of the Nibelungs later found still wider horizons in Parsifal, becoming the seed of that future time when Christianity will embrace not only the religious life, but the life of knowledge, of art, of beauty, in the widest sense of the words. These themes can kindle in us a feeling of what Christianity can one day become for mankind. 
In connection with this, we will now try to draw upon the deep currents of human evolution so as to illumine the real relation between religion and Christianity. The present time of year is not unsuitable for such reflections. The great festival which symbolizes the spirit's victory over death, the festival of Easter, is close upon us, and we remember perhaps those lectures in which we endeavored to grasp the meaning of Christmas in the light of ancient mystery knowledge. If we look from a higher vantage point at the Christmas festival on the one hand and the Easter festival with its prospect of Whitsuntide on the other, the relation between religion and Christianity, if rightly conceived, is brought in a most wonderful way before the I-E-Y-E of spirit. It will be necessary to go far afield in laying the basis of this study, but by doing so we shall realize what has been preserved in such festivals and what they can bring to life in the soul. We shall look far back into human evolution, although not so far either in time or space as in our last lectures, when we dealt with the spiritual hierarchies. Those lectures, however, will have been a help because of the vistas they opened up of the earth's evolution and its connection with the beings of the heavens. Today we shall go back only to about the middle of the Atlantean epoch, when the ancestors of present-day humanity were living in the West, between Europe and America, on the continent now lying beneath the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. In those times the face of the earth was quite different. Where now there is water, then there was land, and on this land dwelt the early ancestors of the peoples of Europe and Asia. When we look with spiritual perception at the soul life of these antediluvian Atlantean peoples, it is seen to have been quite different from the soul life of post-Atlantean humanity. We have learned from earlier studies of the mighty changes that have taken place during the course of earth evolution, changes also in the life of the human soul. The whole of man's consciousness, including the alternating states of waking consciousness by day and sleep by night, have changed. Nowadays, when we wake in the morning, it is normal for us to descend with our astral body and ego into the physical and etheric bodies. This allows us to make use of the physical senses, the eyes for seeing, the ears for hearing, and all the other senses, in order to receive the impressions coming from the material world around us. We plunge down into our brain, into our nervous system, combining and relating our multifarious sense impressions. Such is the life of day. At night the ego and astral body withdraw from the physical and etheric bodies, and sleep ensues. The physical and etheric bodies lie in the bed, but the ego and astral body have passed out of them, and all the impressions of the sense world and of the waking life of day are cast off. Joy, suffering, pleasure, pain, everything that composes our inner waking life of soul passes away, and darkness enshrouds us during the night. This was not always so, however. Let us look, for example, at the middle of the Atlantean epoch. Man's consciousness in those times was essentially different. When in the morning he entered into his physical and etheric bodies, he was not confronted with sharply outlined images of the outer material world. The images were much less distinct and definite, 
rather as street lamps in thick fog may appear to us, surrounded with an aura of rainbow-like colors. You must remember, however, that these color forms, surrounding and blurring what we nowadays perceive as the sharp outlines of objects, and also the tones which in those times were heard resounding from them, revealed a great deal more than the colors and tones familiar to us today. These enriching colors were the expressions of living beings, of the inner soul qualities of these beings. When a human being descended into his physical and etheric bodies, he still had some perception of the spiritual beings around him, whereas nowadays we wake in the morning and perceive merely physical objects with their sharp outlines and colored surfaces. At night when the Atlantean left his physical and etheric bodies, the world into which he passed was not a world of darkness and silence. The images he then perceived were hardly fainter than by day. The only real difference was that whereas in the waking life of day he perceived outer objects belonging to the mineral plant animal and human kingdoms, at night the whole space around him was filled with color forms and tones, with impressions of smell, taste, and so forth. But these colors and tones, these impressions of warmth and cold of which he was conscious, were the garments and mantles of spiritual beings who never descend to physical incarnation, beings whose names and images are preserved in the myths and sagas. Myths and sagas are not just folk tales, they are memories of the visions which people perceived in olden times in these conditions of existence. Human beings were aware of the spiritual both by day and by night. At night they were really surrounded by that world of Nordic gods of which the legends tell, Odin, Freya, and all the other figures in Nordic mythology were not inventions. They were experienced in the spiritual world, with as much reality as we experience our fellow human beings around us today. The sagas are memories of the experiences actually undergone by people of ancient times in their shadowy, clairvoyant consciousness. At the time when this kind of consciousness had evolved from a still earlier form, the sun in the heavens rose at the vernal equinox in the constellation of Libra, the scales. As the Atlantean epoch took its further course, the kind of consciousness that is ours today gradually developed. The impressions received by man during the night when his ego and astral body were outside his physical and etheric bodies became dimmer, less and less distinct. Whereas the images of waking life coming to him when he was within his physical and etheric bodies by day, increased in clarity and definition. Paradoxically speaking, night became more intensely night, day more intensely day. Then came the Atlantean flood and the dawn of the later post-Atlantean epochs of civilization, the ancient Indian civilization, when the holy rishis themselves were the teachers of humanity, the epoch of ancient Persian culture, the epoch of Chaldean, Assyrian, Babylonian, Egyptian culture, the epoch of Greco-Roman culture, and finally our own. These epochs of civilization followed one another after the submergence of Atlantis. During early post-Atlantean times, and to some extent also 
during the last phases of the Atlantean epoch itself, all the various peoples, including those descendants of the Atlanteans who had wandered across to the east and settled there, retained the ancient memories in the form of old myths and legends describing the experiences of the earlier form of Atlantean consciousness. This created the fundamental mood of soul prevailing in these cultures. Legends and myths which originated in Atlantis had come over with the migrating peoples who preserved and narrated them. They were their inspiration. The oldest inhabitants of the north were still vitally aware of the power flowing from these myths because their ancestors remembered that their own forefathers had actually seen what was narrated in them. Something else had also been preserved, something that was not experienced by all the people in general, but only by those who were the initiates of those times, the priests and sages of the mysteries. Their eyes of spirit had penetrated into the same depths of world existence that can be once more disclosed today through spiritual investigation. Initiation consciousness made such vision possible by recreating the soul condition of very ancient times, through which humanity in general had lived in the midst of the spiritual world. Clairvoyance, although dim and shadowy, was still a real and vital power in those olden days. Folklore and saga preserved in often fragmentary and broken revelations, realities that had once been experienced. Ancient wisdom was preserved and cultivated in the mysteries and infused into the individual consciousness of those who became initiates as a wide, all-embracing vista of the universe. Forms of consciousness which had been natural in remote ages had in the later times of the mysteries to be artificially recreated. Why was spiritual vision a natural condition in the far distant past? Because the connection between the physical body and the etheric body was different. The connection existing today did not develop until the later phases of the Atlantean epoch. Before that time, the upper part of the etheric head extended far beyond the boundaries of the physical head. Toward the end of Atlantis, the etheric head gradually drew completely into the physical head until it coincided with it. This gave rise to the later form of consciousness, which became natural in post-Atlantean man, enabling him to perceive physical objects in sharp outlines as we do today. The fact that we can hear tones, be aware of scents, see colors on surfaces, but no longer as expressions of the inmost spiritual reality of things, is connected with the firmer interlocking of the physical body and etheric body, which gradually came about. In earlier times, when the etheric body was still partly outside the physical body, this projecting part of the etheric body was able to receive impressions from the astral body, and it was these impressions that were perceived by the old dreamlike clairvoyance. Not until the etheric body had sunk right down into the physical body was man wholly bereft of his dim clairvoyance. That is why in the ancient mysteries it became necessary for the priests to use special methods to induce in the candidates for initiation the condition which in Atlantis had been natural and normal. 
the astral body of a pupil preparing for initiation in the mystery temples, had first to receive the appropriate impressions. Then the priests conducting the initiation induced a partial loosening of the etheric body, in consequence of which the physical body lay for three and a half days in a trance-like sleep, in a kind of paralytic condition. The astral body was then able to imprint into the loosened etheric body experiences which had once come to Atlantean man in his normal state. Then the candidate for initiation was able to see around him realities that henceforth were no longer merely preserved for him in scripts or in tradition, but had become his own individual experiences. Let us try to picture what actually happened to the candidate for initiation. When the priests in the mysteries raised the etheric body partially out of the physical body and guided the impressions issuing from the astral body into this released etheric body, the candidate experienced the spiritual worlds. So strong and intense were these experiences that when he was restored from the trance and his etheric body was reunited to the physical body, he brought back the memory of these experiences into his physical consciousness. He had been a witness of the spiritual worlds, could himself bear witness to what was happening there. He had risen above and beyond all division into peoples or nations, for he had been initiated into that by which all peoples are united, primal wisdom, primal truth. Thus it was in the ancient mysteries, So too it was in those moments of which I told you in connection with the Christmas mystery when the boundaries which characterize the consciousness of later times disappeared before the initiate's gaze. Think for a moment of the fundamental characteristic of post-Atlantean consciousness. Man is no longer able to see into the innermost nature of things. Between him and this innermost core of being a boundary is fixed. He sees only the surfaces of things in the physical world. What man's consciousness in the post-Atlantean epoch could no longer penetrate became transparent and clear to the pupil entering upon initiation. And then, when the great moment came, in what is called the holy night, he was able to see through the solid earth and to behold the sun, the spiritual, quote, sun at midnight, close quote. In essentials, therefore, this pre-Christian initiation consisted in re-evoking what in ancient times had been the natural condition, the normal state of consciousness. Little by little, as civilization advanced, these memories of olden times receded and the power to experience reality outside the physical body became increasingly rare. But in the earliest periods of the post-Atlantean epoch, There were still many in the ancient Indian, Persian, Chaldean civilizations, indeed even in ancient Egypt, whose etheric bodies were not yet so firmly anchored in the physical body as to prevent them from receiving the impressions of the spiritual world in the form of atavistic remains of an earlier age. Later, during Greco-Roman times, even these vestiges disappeared and it was less and less possible for initiation to be achieved in the same way as before. It became increasingly difficult to preserve for humanity the memories of ancient primal wisdom. At this point, 
we are drawing near the time of our own fifth post-Atlantean epoch, which is of particular significance in the evolution of humanity. In the Greco-Latin period, the fourth post-Atlantean epoch, it was equally possible either to remember the visions of ancient clairvoyance or to live wholly within the physical body, cut off from the spiritual worlds. The whole trend of modern life shows that people of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch have descended still more deeply into the physical body, the outer sign of this being the birth of materialistic concepts. These made their appearance for the first time in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch with the atomists of ancient Greece. Then, having passed from the scene for a time, we find them cropping up again, and during the last four centuries their influence has so greatly increased that humanity has lost not only the content of the old memories of the spiritual worlds, but gradually all belief in the very existence of those worlds. There you have the true state of affairs. In this fifth post-Atlantean epoch, human beings have sunk so deeply into the physical body that they have lost even belief. Belief in the existence of a spiritual world has simply vanished for many people. And now, let us look from a different point of view at the course taken by evolution. Looking back into those ancient Atlantean times of which we have been trying to form a clear picture, we can see that man was still living with and among his gods. He believed not only in his own existence and that of the three kingdoms of nature, but also in the reality of the higher realms of the spiritual worlds. For in the Atlantean epoch he was an actual witness of them. There was no great difference between his night and day consciousness. They were in balance. And it would have been foolishness to deny the reality of what was visible all around one, for the gods could be seen. There was no need for religion in our modern sense. What now forms the content of various religions was a perceived reality to the majority of human beings in the times of Atlantis. Just as little as you yourselves need religion in order to believe in the existence of roses or lilies, rocks or trees, as little did the Atlantean need religion in order to believe in gods, for to him they were realities. But this immediate reality faded away. The content of the spiritual worlds increasingly became mere memory, partly preserved in traditions of the visions of very ancient forefathers, partly in the myths and sagas, and in what a few individuals, gifted with special powers of clairvoyance, had themselves witnessed of these spiritual worlds. Above all, however, this content of the spiritual worlds was preserved and guarded by the priests of the mysteries, the secret knowledge under the guardianship of the priests of Hermes in Egypt, of Zarathustra in Persia, of the sages of Chaldea, of the successors of the Holy of Ishis in India, was nothing else than the art of enabling human beings, through initiation, to witness what ancient peoples had once seen around them in a perfectly natural way. What the mysteries preserved found its way into the forms of various religions, it expressed itself in diverse ways, according to each people's particular faculties and powers of perception, even according to local conditions and climate. But 
primal wisdom was the foundation and unifying principle underlying all these religions. This wisdom was one and the same, whether cultivated by Pythagoras in his school, by the Chaldean sages in Western Asia, by Zarathustra in Persia, or by the Brahmins in India. Everywhere it was the same primal wisdom, expressed in varied form according to the needs and conditions obtaining in the folk religions of different regions. This was the origin of all religious culture. What is religion, fundamentally speaking? It is the intermediary between the spiritual worlds and mankind for people who are no longer able to experience these spiritual worlds through their own organs of perception. Religion was the proclamation, the announcement of the existence of spiritual worlds to all those who could no longer experience spiritual reality. Spiritual life spread over the earth as religious culture in succeeding epochs of civilization, in ancient India, ancient Persia, and the rest, down to our own time. The purpose of man's descent into a physical body was to gain knowledge of the external world, experiencing existence through his physical senses, in order finally to spiritualize what he thus experienced, and so lead it to future stages of evolution. But at the present time, having plunged deeply into the physical body, and having already passed the middle point of the post-Atlantean civilizations, we are entering very particular conditions and circumstances. A large number of people, though not yet all, are experiencing this. The whole evolution of mankind has a certain interesting characteristic. It goes forward in one direction until a certain point is reached. Then its flow is reversed and it begins to stream back in the opposite direction. Having descended to a certain point, evolution turns upward again, reaching the same stages as on the descent, but now in a higher form. Today we stand before a strange and decisive future. Everyone who is aware of this deeply significant fact of evolution knows that our etheric body will gradually loosen itself again after being submerged in the physical body and perceiving the things of the physical world in their sharply outlined forms. The etheric body must loosen and release itself again so that man's being may become spiritualized and have vision once more of the spiritual world. Humanity has actually now reached the point when the etheric bodies of many people are beginning to loosen. Something most significant is approaching us, which can reveal to us the secret of our own epoch of civilization. The etheric body, which has descended very deeply into the physical body, must now take the path upward, carrying with it from the physical body everything that has been experienced through the physical senses. But because the etheric body is loosening itself from the physical, everything that was formerly reality in the physical sense must gradually be spiritualized. It will be essential for mankind in times to come to have conscious certainty that the spiritual also has reality in the physical realm. What will happen otherwise? The etheric body will be freed from the physical body 
while people still believe only in the physical world and have no consciousness of the reality of the spiritual manifest in the loosened etheric body as the fruit of man's past experience in the physical body. In such conditions, people may be faced with the danger of losing all relationship to this loosening of their etheric bodies. Let us consider the point at which a person's etheric body, which has been wholly and firmly anchored in the physical body, begins to loosen and emerge from it again. Suppose that this happens to someone who in his physical existence has lost all belief in, all consciousness of the spiritual world and has cut himself off from any connection with it. Let us assume that he descended so firmly and thoroughly into the physical body that he was left only with the belief in physical life as the one and only reality. Now he passes into the next phase of human existence. Relentlessly the etheric body emerges from the physical body while he is still incapable of being aware of the existence of a spiritual world. He neither recognizes nor knows anything of the spiritual world about him. The fate which could confront people in the near future is that they might not recognize the spiritual world revealed through the loosening of the etheric body, but regard it as a fantasy, as illusion and vain imagination. And those who have most fully and perfectly experienced the physical body those who have become the pundits of materialism and are full of fixed, rigid notions of matter will face the greatest danger. As their etheric body loosens, they may remain quite ignorant that there is a spiritual world. They will regard everything that then comes to them from the spiritual world as mere fantasy and illusion, as insubstantial dream. We live in times in which the very people who consider themselves the leading lights of humanity are the ones who have descended furthest into the physical body. Such leaders believe that they have an unassailable science at their disposal. The deep immersion of their etheric bodies in the physical has caused them to lose all awareness of a world of spirit. It is they who are fated to be worst affected by the circumstances which I must now describe. If in times to come, when the etheric body has again loosened itself from the physical, man is to live his life truly and fully, he must have consciousness of the spiritual world, which will then present itself to the etheric body. It is therefore essential that realization of the existence of the spiritual world shall be preserved in humanity and carried through the period when we are most deeply immersed in the material world. For the sake of the future, the link between the religious life and the life of knowledge must never be lost. Man came forth from a life among the gods. To a life among the gods he will again ascend. But he must be able to recognize them. It is essential for him to know that the gods are realities. Once the etheric body has loosened, he will no longer be able to remember back to ancient human times. 
if meanwhile he has lost consciousness of the spiritual world, has come to believe that life and the physical body and things to be seen in the physical world are the only realities, then for all future ages of time he must float about, as it were, in mid-air. He will have lost his bearings in the spiritual world and will have no ground under his feet. He will be threatened in this condition with what is known as, quote, spiritual death, close quote. For around him there is only fantasy, illusion, a world of whose reality he has no consciousness, in which he does not believe, and so he dies. That is what death means in the spiritual world. It is the doom which threatens people if before passing again into the spiritual worlds they fail to bring with them any consciousness of those worlds. At what point in the evolution of humanity was attainment of full consciousness of the spiritual world made possible for us? It was at the point when Christ set before us the great ideal of humanity by descending into a physical body and then overcoming it. A full understanding of Christ can form the bridge for us between memories of the ancient past and the foreshadowings of the future. When Jesus of Nazareth had reached the age of thirty, the Christ came down into his body. Christ was the being who lived once only in a physical body. His victory over death, when it is rightly understood, shows us how we must live, so as to be conscious of the reality of the spiritual world in all future ages. That is the true union with Christ. How will the Christ mystery live in the human being of the future? In the future, we will look back upon our present epoch, when we lived wholly within the physical body, just as post-Atlantean man looks back to those Atlantean times when he was living together with the gods. As we ascend again into the spiritual world, we will know that we have gained victory over what we experienced in the physical body. We will look back to the physical as something that has been overcome, surmounted. We should feel the Easter miracle, then, as a mighty deed, a foreshadowing of the future. Two possibilities lie before the human being of the future. The one possibility is that he will look back in remembrance to the time of his experiences in the physical body and will say, quote, These alone were real. Now there is about me only a world of illusion. Life in the physical body, that was the reality. Close quote. Such a person will be gazing back upon the physical realm as into a grave. What he will see there is a corpse, but the corpse, the physical, will still be for him the true reality. That is the one possibility. The other is that human beings will look back upon what was experienced in the physical world and will know that it is a grave. Then with deep consciousness of the import of their words, they will say to those who still believe the physical to have been the one and only reality, quote, He whom thou seekest is no longer there. The grave is empty, and he who lay within it has risen. Close quote. The empty grave and the risen Christ. This is the Easter mystery the mystery that is a foreshadowing, a prophecy, 
Christ wished to establish the great synthesis between the Easter mystery and the Christmas mystery. To the Christmas reenactment of the ancient mysteries is added the mystery of future time, the mystery of the risen Christ. This is the mystery enshrined in the festival of Easter. The future of Christianity is not merely to proclaim the existence of higher worlds, nor be mere religion, but to be an inner affirmation, a powerful impulse in life itself. It will be an inner affirmation because in the risen Christ man will behold that which he himself will experience through the ages of time to come. This mystery is a deed, a reality of life, inasmuch as we look up to Christ not merely as the Savior, but as the great example and ideal who precedes us and whom we follow, for we too will eventually overcome death. To live and work in the spirit of Christianity, to see in Christ not merely the Comforter, but the One who goes before us, who is related in the deepest sense with our innermost being, this is what the Christ idea will be in the future pervading all knowledge, all art, all life. And if we remind ourselves of what is contained in the Easter idea, we shall find there a Christian symbol of of true deed, true life. In times when human beings will have long since ceased to need the teachings of religion to tell them of the ancient gods, because they will again be living among gods, Christ will be a source of strength, enabling them to find their own firm center among the gods. Themselves spiritualized, human beings will live consciously among spiritual beings, strengthened by what Christianity has given them, and fulfilling their tasks in communion with these beings. In a future by no means far distant, man will find that the physical world is losing its importance for him. The reality of physical things will already have paled long before man's existence on the earth has drawn to its close. But when the things of the physical world of sense cease to be all-important and fade into shadow, man will either find that the physical is vanishing, while he is still incapable of believing in the spiritual realities before him, or he will be able to believe and preserve for himself the consciousness of these spiritual realities, and for him there will then be no spiritual death. To confront a reality that one does not believe in means to be shattered in the spirit. Human beings would be spiritually shattered if with the loosening of the etheric body the spiritual worlds were to appear before them without being recognized and known as such. Many people today could have consciousness of the spiritual worlds, but do not have it. Therefore these worlds rebound upon them. This shows itself in restlessness, in neurasthenic conditions, in pathological fears, which are nothing else than the consequences of failure to unfold consciousness of the spiritual worlds. Those who realize the significance of these things feel the necessity of a spiritual movement which for those who are outgrowing the substance of ordinary religion preserves belief in the human being, in the whole human being, including, therefore, the spiritual human being. 
To know Christ means to know man as a spiritual being. To be filled with the Christ mystery in the future will mean that Christianity as mere religion will be surmounted and will be carried as knowledge to infinite horizons. Christianity will permeate art, will broaden and enliven it, will bestow in abundance the power of artistic creation. Richard Wagner's Parsifal is the first foreshadowing of this. Christianity will flow into all life and activity on the earth. When the formal religions have long ceased to be necessary, mankind will have been strengthened and invigorated by the Christ impulse, which was once given to it in the middle of the fourth post-Atlantean epoch during the Greco-Latin epoch, when Christ came down amongst humanity. Just as it was our destiny to sink into the deepest depths of material life, so we must be lifted again to knowledge of the Spirit. With the coming of Christ, this impulse was given. These are the feelings that should inspire us in the days when the symbols of the Easter festival surround us. For the Easter mystery is not merely a mystery of remembrance. It is also a mystery of the future foreshadowing the destiny of those who free themselves more and more from the shackles, ensnarements, and pitfalls of the purely material life. The end of Lecture 14